The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. This morning we're continuing our study of 2 John. Now, when I started this epistle, I thought this would be two weeks and we'll move on. This is our fourth week. I don't know how this happened, but you can see we're going to do one verse today, all right? I just, you know, you get into this, and it's like, I could skip over it. I could do the whole thing. And, <laughs> I, I could do this in, in, in just, you know, 30 minutes if I wanted to just read it. But, you know, we want to get out of what's in here, all right? And this brief little letter was written, first of all, to remind the readers of the command to love one another. Now, we saw last week that we love Yahweh and we love our neighbor by keeping His commandments. Now, as believers are not under the Old Covenant with its 613 laws, we know that, but we are under the law of Christ. Paul tells the Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So how do we fulfill this law? By bearing the burdens of one another. By loving one another. The law of Christ is the law of love. And these laws that are laid out for us in the New Testament, they tell us how do we love one another? How do we love God? The old covenant believers has passed away. And we as believers are under the new and the everlasting covenant. So if you want to understand where you get your marching orders, it's from the new covenant. All right, and basically we saw the Lord boiled it down to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it, just love, okay? How do we know how to love? Well, that's what the commands are for. If you love, you won't do this. If you love, you won't do that. If you love, you will do this, all right? The New Testament's full of them. All right, so that was kind of John's initial purpose, but John had a second purpose in this writing this letter, and that was to warn the church about itinerant false teachers that were traveling around teaching false doctrine. Now, these teachers claimed to have the secret, they called it, of knowing Christ. They had a deeper relationship. They had a better understanding. But in reality, they denied His bodily incarnation. They denied His deity. So, and I said this last week, and I want you to get this, because I think it's strong for our culture. But this letter is a warning against being loving and hospitable toward those who say they belong to Christ but teach false doctrine. Now, I say that's hard in our culture because it's like, well, it doesn't matter what they believe. We're just nice to them. We love everybody. And who cares what you believe? No, doctrine is very, very important, people. And we see how important it is by John and how he's dealing with it here. All right, this verse is a warning. So as we move into verse 7, John's attention moves from the existence of beliefs inside the Johannian community which gives him great joy, he said in verse 4, to the dangers presented to it through those who are traveling around preaching false doctrine. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now he tells us there are many deceivers. He's referring to the cessationists, the opponents described at length in 1 John. 
We spent much time dealing with that, these people that were traveling around teaching the false doctrine. He said, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, the conjunction for here, hate in the Greek, it can be translated for or because. And it links the previous verse with this one. It connects them. This verse shows us why John regarded it so important for his readers to walk in truth that they'd heard from the beginning. They are to walk in truth because many deceivers have gone out into the world that were teaching new doctrines. And so he's telling us the way to avoid being taken in by these deceivers is to walk in the truth. Now the word deceiver here comes from the Greek word planos, from which we get our English word planet. In the ancient world, the movement of the heavenly bodies was mapped and studied the zodiac. They understood the zodiac. We've talked about this before. I believe the gospel was displayed through the zodiac. Well, these stars fit into a stable pattern. But some stars, which were really planets, they moved irregularly. And the ancients called them wanderers. They developed metaphorically to this wandering from the truth. So beware of deceivers, the planos, those who wander away from the truth. That's what he's warning them against. And John especially has in mind here the false teachers who had left the church and were drawing others after them. These false prophets are described as having gone out into the world. And this appears to be a direct reference to the secession of the opponents mentioned in 1 John 2.19. Since the same Greek verb, erkomai, to go out or to depart, is used in both places. Now, warning about false prophets that are operating within the Christian community, this is what's important, this is what we have to understand. These false prophets are among us. Or he's not warning about something else out there. Warning the ones who call themselves Christians. They're in the church. They're involved. There's a warning. And we find warnings all through the New Testament about false prophets. All right? Yeshua warned about false prophets in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, sheep's clothing here, people, it's not talking about a sheepskin stuck over a wolf. You all seen those pictures? That comes from Aesop's fables, all right? That is not what it's talking about here. All right, when a shepherd watched over the flocks on the hillside, his garment would be a sheepskin. It'd be worn with the skin outside and the fleece inside. And this sheepskin mantle became the uniform of the prophets, just like the Greek philosophers had worn the philosopher's robe. It was by that mantle that the prophet could be distinguished from other men. But sometimes that clothing was worn by those who had no right to wear it. They were those who were not prophets of God, but wore the prophet's clothing. So he's warning them, be careful. They look like prophets. They wear the prophet's garment. They're not prophets. They're false prophets. And so Yeshua warned them, just as we see John warning his readers. Paul also warned his readers. We see in Acts 20, verse 17, Now for Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul sends out this greeting. I want you guys to come to my leaders so we can talk. And so the elders come there and Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. So he's warning them about false doctrine. People are going to come in teaching. Now watch what he says. And from among your own selves will arise speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert. The shocking part was, he says, these false teachers are going to rise from your elders, from this group. They're fierce wolves. They're going to cease to be shepherds who feed and care for the flock, and they're going to become a danger to the flock, preying upon the flock, speaking perverse things. So we need to guard against those who pose as Christian teachers, but teach contrary to the Bible. And people, they don't make it obvious, okay? A lot of truth there, and then they keep throwing these little subtle things in there to pull you away. Peter warned of false prophets. 2 Peter 2.1 But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They get the idea secretly there. They're bringing these things in. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We need to view all these warnings against false teachers in the context of first century life. People met in houses for worship, for fellowship. And a false teacher could make a really comfortable living as an itinerant prophet, traveling from place to place. It's funny that even the pagan satirist uh, Lucian, the Greek writer, in his work Peregrinus, he draws a picture of a man who had found the easiest possible way of making a living without working. He says he was an itinerant preacher who traveled around and lived off the fat of the land, going to various communities of the Christians and settling down there and having them take care of him. So you can see this is a danger, and that's what John's warning him. And if you're paying attention to the reading today, he says, listen, I don't want you even greeting these people. I don't want you welcoming in their house. This is a strong warning against false doctrine. And this is why John told his readers to test the spirits in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Now, I tell you that all the time, people. Don't believe what I tell you. You study it. You find out if that's true. David said it doesn't cut it. Okay? you got to dig this out for yourself. you got to find out for yourself. You, you are responsible for that. So he, John is telling you, you need to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because there's a lot of false prophets out there. The word test here is dakimadzo. According to the third edition of Bauer's Lexicon... The verb means to make critical examination of something, to determine genuineness, to put to the test, to examine. This was a word used in metallurgy where the metal was assayed to its value, silver, gold. It was tested to see its strength. It was put to the fire for such an evaluation. So dakimadzo is used in a metaphoric sense here of testing people before they're assigned to a prominent task or before you begin to trust them. You examine them. You put it to the test. So how are they to test the spirits? They were to test everything that they heard from what they got from the apostolic circle, from what the apostles were teaching them. And for us, how do we test them? From the Word of God. Do you line up with Scripture? Do they not line up with Scripture? You know, and that, of course, calls for us to be aware of Scripture and understand what it's saying so we know. What the Bible says, we can spot a false teacher. Now, John tells, says that these false teachers are those that do not confess the coming of Yeshua Christ in the flesh. Confess here <clears throat> is a compound Greek word, hamalageo. Hamalageo means to speak the same. So they're not speaking the same thing that God does about the 
coming of Christ in the flesh. All right? Hamalagel, to say the same thing. Those they do not they do not say the same thing about the coming of Yeshua, the Christ in the flesh. Alright? That's that's very important. These false teachers are disagreeing with God as to the coming of Christ. Now he says here, the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Now this is the same confession that is mentioned in 1 John 4 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua, the Christ, has come in the flesh is from God. Now, can you hang on for a minute? I want to get technical here for a minute because I think this is important. So stay with me here, all right? There's a slight difference between 2 John 1, 7 and 1 John 4, 2. 1 John 4, 2 says Yeshua, the Christ, has come in the flesh. And 2 John 1, 7 says the coming of Yeshua, the Christ, in the flesh. In 1 John 4.2, it has the perfect participle erkomai, all right? And in 2 John 1.7, it has a present participle erkomai. And you say, so what? What's the big deal? Well, let me, uh, commenting on this perfect and present participle, Hall Harris writes this. There are two possible ways of understanding the significance of the present participle erkomai. A, he says, If the participle is understood in a futuristic sense, Jesus Christ, who will come in the flesh, this could be a reference to the parousia, the second advent. You see a problem there? With a preterist? He says, such a sense is grammatically possible for the present tense according to Blas de Bruner. That's a Greek text. He says, if this represents a proper understanding of the present participle, then the confession in 2 John 7 involves acknowledgement of Jesus' second coming, and the opponents would be denying this. Or as an alternative possibility, the opponents may acknowledge the second coming, but deny that it will be in the flesh. Now, as you can see, this would be a problem for the preterists. Alright? But, I have never heard anybody make this argument against preterism. And I believe I've read every argument against it because I've tried to get out of it. (laughs) This was in the beginning, and I'm like, I'm digging for something. There's got to be something out there. But you get really dumb arguments like, well, look, the stars are still in the sky. Preterism can't be true. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great argument, but really appreciate that. Okay, well, Hal Harris goes on to say in his second part, The second possibility is to understand the participle as a reference to the first coming, that is, the incarnation. In this case, what is being affirmed is the confession is that Jesus is really the Christ come in the flesh. This sense is strongly favored by the parallel confession in 1 John 4, 2, where the perfect participle is used, thus pointing to a past event. All right, so this sense, he's favoring this, and he's not a preterist, so he's just favoring this. Blast de Bruner's standard reference grammar states that the present participle can sometimes be used to describe actions which had occurred in the past, so this doesn't have to point to the future at all. All right, but of course, some people are going to want to point it to the future. And some have suggested that John's use of the present form of the verb here points to Yeshua's future coming. They said, it's pointing to the parousia. Such an interpretation would have the secessionists denying the in-flesh nature of both the first and the second comings. All right? Now, there are some people who see it that way. 
The problem with this interpretation is there's no hints anywhere in the Johannian letters that the secessionists denied the in-flesh nature of Yeshua's parousia. And I think you, you won't find anything in John's letters that deny that because John never believed in it, never thought about it, all right? And this is another problem with this, is, is where in the New Testament does it talk about an in-flesh bodily appearance of the Lord at His second coming? You know everybody swears that's in there, right? Yeah, all right. Okay, well, we're going to look at that text, all right? Well, let's look at a, a few second coming texts, because, I mean, people think He's coming in a body. You know, five foot five Jewish man, he's going to be standing on a cloud. Some reason he won't fall through it, but he's going to just be floating there with the clouds and coming back. And every eye is going to see this man, right? Let's look at a few texts here. Mark 13, 21 through 23. This is Mark's Olivet Discourse. And then if anyone says to you, look here, is the Christ? Or look, there he is. Don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. Again, warning of false prophets. And perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, in these verses, Yeshua seems to stress that His coming will not be a physical, bodily coming. Because if someone says, here's the Christ, or there, they weren't to believe it. Why? Listen, if His coming was physical, if His coming was bodily, someone would be able to say, He's over there. I saw him. They were not to believe that because his coming was not to be physical. It wasn't going to be bodily. And yet it would be plainly seen. How's that work out? How would they see his coming? This is what we have to understand, people. They would see his coming in the judgment that they would see upon Jerusalem. Because that's what he told them. Not one stone will be left here upon another. He's coming not to show up and say, here I am. It's just like through the old covenant when Yahweh came. Yahweh came in judgment. He didn't show up. No one saw him. There's God on the cloud. No, he came in judgment. They would see that judgment that would fall upon Jerusalem. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail account of him. Even so, amen. I love to hear people's comments on this. This is going to be on uh, cable TV. That's how everybody will see him. Well, does that assumes everybody has cable TV, and that assumes everybody's watching cable TV. All right. <laughs> John stated in the Revelation that Yeshua was coming soon. He was coming quickly, and that the Jews who pierced him were going to wail at his coming. We need to see this not as a physical, bodily coming of Christ, but a coming. In judgment. The idea of seeing here is not physically seeing, but recognizing, understanding, being made aware. See, the destruction of Jerusalem would cause the tribes of Israel to recognize that Yeshua was indeed the Son of Man, the Messiah. And they would mourn about that. Now, Thomas Newton, writing in 1754, said this, Our Savior proceedeth in the same figurative style, verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The plain meaning of it is that the destruction of Jerusalem would be such a remarkable instance of divine vengeance. The plain meaning. I love the way he says it. Everybody knows this. All right, that's just the plain meaning of that text, right? Divine judgment and vengeance. 
such a signal manifestation of Christ's power and glory that all the Jewish tribes shall mourn, and many will be led from thence to acknowledge Christ and the Christian religion. In the ancient prophets, God is frequently described as coming in the clouds upon any remarkable interposition and manifestation of His power, and the same description is here applied to Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem will be as ample a manifestation of Christ's power and glory as if He was Himself to come visibly in the clouds of heaven. Now see, He says that's plain. You know why it was plain to Him? Because He understands the Old Covenant Scriptures. And so if you have an understanding of Scripture, this is plain. Now if you don't, if you're a 21st century Christian and you never even read the Old Covenant... Okay, you never read through the Tanakh, then you're like, oh, coming on a cloud, I know what that means. You're a cloud, I know what a cloud is, I know what standing on one means, I don't know how, but yeah, he's just drifting in on a cloud. Somehow everyone in the whole world is going to see it. John Gill, who was a premillennialist, wrote this in 1809. He shall appear, not in person, but in the power of his wrath and vengeance on the Jewish nation, which will be a full sign and proof of his being come. See, the prophetic language of the Tanakh clearly shows that the Lord's coming on a cloud speaks of coming in judgment. We just have to go back to that language and look through it, and we see when God comes in judgment, He comes on clouds. And so when we know that, we come to the New Testament, we go, I know what that means. See, because the New Testament writers, they all knew that. And they were writing in the same style. They're all Jewish. They're familiar with the Old Covenant. They talk about a cloud coming. They're talking about the same thing you see throughout the Tanakh. People saw Him come in judgment, but it wasn't a visible appearance of Christ in person. Yeshua predicted both the destruction of Jerusalem and His parousia in the same context. Since Jerusalem was destroyed, just like He said it would be, why would it be hard to believe that He came just like He said He would? The destruction of Jerusalem was a substantial, a manifestation of Christ's power and glory as if He were to come Himself on the clouds of heaven. Look at Mark 14.62. Yeshua said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. The coming with the clouds of heaven, that's clearly second coming language, just as we saw in Revelation 1.7. He's coming in the clouds. But notice that Mark here says that Yeshua, he uses a personal pronoun here. You will see. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Caiaphas here. And he says, I am, and you... You, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man seated at the right. Now, that's a little bit of a problem if the Lord hadn't come yet, right? Because that means Yeshua was either confused here that he would see it. He was lying to Caiaphas. Something's wrong. If he didn't come in Caiaphas' lifetime, something's wrong here. But he did come, all right? Caiaphas asked Yeshua if he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and Yeshua answered Caiaphas by saying that you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and come in the clouds of heaven. Yeshua says specifically that the high priest, Caiaphas, would see both the sitting and the coming. Now this must be referring to something that was to take place in Caiaphas' lifetime. Our text says that Caiaphas will see him seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Which means this can't refer to a bodily coming. How do you do both these at the same time? How is he seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven? 
This is apocalyptic language. See, his coming with the clouds of heaven in judgment was proof that he was at the right hand of power, just like he said he would be. That was the demonstration of it. All right, back to our text, the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. So why does John use the present tense of Erechomai here? Well, some suggest that the present tense is being used to speak of the abiding reality of the incarnation. And that makes a lot of sense to me, all right? Namely, that Yeshua didn't just come in the flesh and then put off the flesh, but that He remains in the flesh. It would seem that the writer had docetism in view here when he talked about this. So the, that was, docetism was the forerunner of Gnosticism. And docetism was influenced by Neoplatonic dualism, and it taught that the flesh is evil and the spirit's good. Therefore, the Christ spirit couldn't have come upon a man. Because flesh is bad, it's evil, so they, they just couldn't buy that. And the doctrinal error that these deceivers was that they do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. That was their denial. They, they just doubted that. They said it's not true. So what is it they're denying? They're denying the doctrine of the incarnation. All right? Well, people say, well, that's a doctrine. Okay, they're wrong on that. That's okay. No, it's not. John's really strong here that it's not okay. All right? As we talked about in 1 John, this was most likely some form of the Serinthian heresy, also known as docetism, from the Greek verb dokio, and dokio means to seem to appear. And there was a philosophical idea that the Logos spirit, the divine spirit, didn't really become a man. He just seemed to appear as a man. It was sort of a phantom Christ, uh, a sort of visionary Christ, really an illusion. And this was born out of the ancient philosophical dualism. And in this belief, the viewpoint, matter's evil, spirit's good. And the good spirit, the good logo spirit, the divine spirit, could never become one with human flesh because it would become evil. Matter's evil. So he simply appeared to be in the flesh, but he could not be flesh. Here's what we need to understand. And this is real important, people. I'm sure these docetists used the Bible to back things up, right? They didn't just come say, forget about all that teaching the apostles taught you. Forget about all that Bible stuff. We got some new insight. No, they just went right along with it and they come. You know, they probably come. Of course, they didn't have the scriptures at this time. All right. But if they did, they would have come and said, hey, you know, Romans 8, it talks, it talks about the fact that... Um, the flesh is bad. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. So flesh is bad, right? So why would, why would Christ want to take on flesh? Why would He want to do that? Don't, don't be tricked by that, they would say. That would make Christ evil. So they would say, he, he really didn't come in the flesh. It just seemed that way. What actually happened, He was just a man who was especially close to God. And at His baptism, the Christ Spirit came upon Him but it departed from him prior to crucifixion. So it was a man that died on the cross. And they would say, doesn't that make more sense than this other thing about incarnation and God be taking on flesh and God becoming a man? And they would just use that as inroads. And that's why he is warning them here. Okay? False doctrine doesn't just come up and slap you in the face, say, hey, this is all wrong, but I want to teach it to you. No. And teaching like this will sound good to people who are not that familiar with the scriptures. 
So let's talk about what the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh is. What exactly is the incarnation? And why is it important? Well, the incarnation is this. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who was eternal in the Godhead, at a point in time, took upon Himself human nature and identified Himself not only with our nature, but with the conditions in which we live on the earth. In other words, the person of Christ always has been. But at a point in time, He began to be what He eternally was not, a man. He didn't cease to be God. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word was God. This statement could not be much clearer. In fact, these four Greek words may be the clearest declaration of the deity of Yeshua in all Scripture. The Word was God. The word uh, was there is the Greek verb me, and it means to be, to exist. It suggests continued existence. So the Word always existed as Yahweh. The Word here is referring to the deity of Yeshua. Now, let's drop down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what I want you to see here, we have in verse 1 that the Word was God, and then we have here that the Word became flesh. So what this is saying is God became flesh. That's where people have a problem. God, the eternal God, became a man. All right? This has been expressed by the theological term incarnation. All right? Which comes from the two Latin words in plus cargo, meaning enfleshment. And that's God became a flesh. It's enfleshment. God chose to become united to true humanity. There was one difference, though, between Yeshua and all other humanity. What was that? What? All right, he was sinless. Romans 8.3 for, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Now notice it doesn't say by sending His own Son in, the, in sinful flesh, but in the likeness. And likeness here is the Greek word homoioma. And homoioma means similar but different. In other words, you look at him, he looked like a man. His humanity was genuine. He was different from all other humans in that he was sinless. But he had real human flesh. He felt pain. He felt sorrow. He wept. He died. But he was sinless. Man could not be reconciled to God by a divine fiat, which spoke sin away. That's something we have to understand. All right, we talk about this all the time. All right, but God couldn't just say, "Look, you messed up. You're a sinner. I'm just going to overlook it this time." All right, He's not like some some parents are. Oh, I know I told you not to do that, but that's okay. You just did it anyway. You know, no, God is just. He's righteous, so He says, "I love you, but I can't bring you into my kingdom because you're a sinner." So something had to be done about it. Something had to be done because God couldn't just forgive us. When the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh, He cleared a way for the Father to be both just and the justifier of Him that believes in Christ. Because Christ 
paid our sin debt. So now our sin's paid, so now God can say, okay, justice has served. It's been served. You're welcome in. You can come in. Romans 3.26 talks about God being just and the justifier of him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. So Yeshua was a man sharing all aspects of humanity except for sin. Now at the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the one triune God, was forever joined to true humanity. This joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union, I'm going to have a quiz after the service on these, these terms, okay? The hypostatic union is the personal union of the two natures, the divine and the human of the Lord Yeshua. Now the question comes up a lot, you know, people who are thinking say, well, could Christ have sinned? And people say, well, he was tempted, and, and if he couldn't have sinned, the temptation wasn't real. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been tempted and not sinned? Do this. I hope at one point, <laughs> at one point in your life, you've been tempted and you did not give in to it. Okay? Yes. Well, then Christ could really be tempted and not give in. Listen, his human nature was welded to the divine nature, and God cannot sin, so no Christ couldn't have sinned. He was impeccable. But he felt the temptation every bit as real as you feel temptations even when you don't sin. The union was affected when the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human nature in his divine person so that God became forever undivided and indivisible person, the God-man. One person, two nature. This is what Paul called the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh. God was demonstrated in the flesh. Vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So the second person of the Trinity took on human nature forever. Yeshua is the Christ, 100% God, 100% man. That's where we get the theological term theanthropic. Theos God, Anthropos Man, Theanthropic. Yeshua was the God-Man. 100% God, 100% Man. The only person ever existed in that condition, all right? He's one person with two natures. He's got a human nature, so believe me, people, he understands what we deal with, he understands what we go through, because he's been there. Martin Luther was forced to admit that the union could not really be explained. He says, reason cannot comprehend this, but we believe it. And this is also the testimony of Scripture, that Christ is true God, and He also became a man. All right, so is the incarnation a big deal? Well, John seems to think so. Look what he says. He says, the ones who deny it is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, Antichrist, that's a term that Christians are familiar with. It's somehow ominous to people, though. It's like the word carries some certain apocalyptic visions or something. Molden Milligan cite examples to show the Greek prefix anti. When it's added to some person's name or title, it can mean either the claim to be that person. That's weird to me. I'm like, anti means you're claiming to be that person. Okay. Or he says, opposition to, equivalence to, or submission, or substitution for that person. 
So antichrists are those who oppose Christ. They oppose His teaching. John is the only New Testament writer to use this word. It's only found five times in four verses. Clearly, Antichrist is one who openly and overtly denies that Yeshua is the Christ. He says they're Antichrist. That's to say he speaks lies concerning Christ. He denies that Yeshua is the Christ, which is fundamentally a denial of the nature, identity, and work of Yeshua. To deny the Incarnation is to be Antichrist. It's to deny the Scriptures. I think we understand what the Incarnation was. But why? What was his purpose? Why did God have to become a man? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question for us. Hebrews 2.14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So the children share flesh and blood, so he himself took on flesh and blood. That, through death, see, he couldn't die as God, right? In his divine nature, Christ's life was indestructible, Hebrews 7.16. He couldn't die. God can't die. But a death was necessary to deal with the guilt and the punishment of sin. So Christ became human precisely so that he could die. This is what love is about. We see love in him. He came into this earth so that he could die for those he loved. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The ultimate end and purpose was that by death as a man, a sinless man, he may redeem man and thus break the devil's hold. See, he couldn't be someone who had sin, because if he was someone who had sin and he died, he died for his own sin. He couldn't die for somebody else's. He had his own sins to pay for. But with Christ, having no sins to pay for, and being the God-man, he died for our sin. In Acts 20, 28, we read this earlier, Paul says, Be careful. Pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. The church is a blood-bought community paid for by Christ. He purchased the church, the elect, with His blood, with His sacrificial death. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So God became a man to die and to free man from Satan's hold on death. Now, the question, how does the death of Christ defeat the power of the devil in death? And to see that, let's compare the flow of thought in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 with verses 17. 17 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what stands out immediately when you compare these verses in the flow of thought here from 14 down to 17 is they speak of Christ having become like us. Verse 17 says, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same. 
So we know we're dealing here in verse 17 with the same basic flow of thought. In order to accomplish something, Christ had to become one of us. But in the rest of verse 17, it's different from verses 14 and 15. And the difference shows how it is that Christ defeated the devil by dying for us. It says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 14 says that Christ became like us so that he could die and render powerless the one who had the power of death. Verse 17 says he became a faithful high priest. Now, my conclusion here is that Christ rendered the devil powerless in death by his high priestly work of making propitiation for our sins. So Christ strips the devil of his power in death by making propitiation for our sins. How does that work? Well, the word here, propitiation, propitiation is a concept I hope you have by now. Propitiation means the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. This is why all cultures would offer up sacrifices. Why? They wanted the gods to be happy with them. They wanted to remove wrath. So you say, isn't that a pagan principle? No, this is a pretty biblical principle. God's wrath against us was removed by the offering of the sacrifice of His Son. See, when Christ dies, He is perfectly innocent, Hebrews 4.15. His death is to bear the guilt and punishment of our sins, not His own. And when our punishment falls on Him, it's taken from us. That's what propitiation means. God's justice is satisfied. Again, Romans 3 He's just in forgiving us because the justice has been paid. Somebody else paid it. He loved us enough to put His own Son forward to absorb the punishment that we deserve so that He could demonstrate that He is just and faithful in dealing with sin and merciful in dealing with sinners. This is the Gospel, people. And this is the beauty of the Gospel. It's not about what we do. It's about what God did for us. This is our great salvation. Christ dying in our place, propitiating us. And this is why I keep saying this to you people, and hopefully it's starting to sink in now. When you get to heaven, you deserve to be there. Deserve to be there. Some of you are going to walk in there with your tail between your legs, metaphorically, because you're like, I haven't been a very good Christian. You know, you're not there because of anything you did. You're there because of what Christ did, and so you have a right to be there. It's incredible, people. This is an incredible gospel, and it's not about us and what we do. It's about the glory of God, all right? God's anger has been removed from us. We are in Him. Now, people say, well, you've got to keep the law. I did. I'm in Christ. Christ lived a perfect, righteous life, and I'm in Him, and I share His righteousness. You know, that's the only righteousness that will get you into heaven, is His, okay? You can't get in on yours, okay? No matter how hard you try, you're not getting in. His righteousness was perfect. When you take it, you're there. You belong there. You're welcome there. Look what Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation. Katakrama, penal servitude. No judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you go back to Romans 5, Paul uses the same word, and because of sin, condemnation came upon man. Well, now, guess what? There's no condemnation. You're not going to be condemned. That's kind of hard for some of us to believe, isn't it? We're not, God's not going to condemn us at all? No. No condemning. But isn't He going to remind us? No. Christ paid for all your sins. Your past, your pre- present, your future. They're all paid for. Every one of them. You say, well, and some people say, well, that's a license to sin. If you're that stupid, 
Okay? The, the reason we live in obedience to God is out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, out of what He's done. That's one reason. The second reason is, if you live like hell on this earth, you're going to suffer judgment on this earth. Temporal discipline, temporal judgment, which can be very severe. But in eternity, people, we're in, we're in union with Christ. Now, let me give you one more reason for the incarnation. I mean, that's basically it. The incarnation, He came to die for sinners, to bring us into Himself. But, but let me maybe make you think about something else that I think is important here. If there was no incarnation of the Lord, if there was no second person of the divine trinity, you know, forever coming and becoming man, we would not really have a reliable, in-your-face revelation of the Father. I mean, how do we know who God is? You say, well, we have the Bible, right? Yes, we have the Bible, but you, you read it and you're like scratching your head sometimes. Well, look what Christ said in John 1.18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He's talking about Himself. And He said, nobody ever saw God, but you saw Him when you looked at Me. So Christ came to this earth and became a man, and when we look at Christ, when we watch Christ, we're watching God. So if you don't have an incarnation, you don't have this revelation of the Father. We wouldn't even know what He's like apart from Yeshua. John 14, 7, He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father. From now on you do not know Him and have never seen Me. And Philip responds, well, okay, Lord, show us the Father. And he said, Yeshua said to him, How have I been so long with you and you still don't know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. If there's no incarnation, there's no revelation of the Father. And that's why Christ came. He said, Look, watch me. Look what I do. This is I am God in human flesh. In Christ, we watch God walk on the earth. The God who created the earth walk upon it. So John says, listen, these people who are coming to you, if they don't confess the coming of Yeshua, the Christ in the flesh, they're antichrist. They're deceivers. Don't, you know, and again, we're going to get into this in next week, but don't, don't greet them. Don't welcome them into your house. Remember, hospitality is a big thing. No, don't do that. Believers, John is trying to tell us, and again, I think this is so hard to grasp in our culture, doctrine is important. What you believe is important. The doctrine of the incarnation is fundamental to our faith. To deny it is to deny the deity of Christ. It's to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. To deny the incarnation, listen to this, is to be antichrist. <laughs> That's what John said. And the best way we can guard against false doctrine is to know and walk in the truth. And the way we do that is through spending time in the Word of God, pouring into our lives, meditating on it so we can be the people God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity again to look at your word. Father, help us to take these warnings of John very seriously, Lord. We live in a culture that's tolerant of everything except truth. Father, give us grace. Give us wisdom. May we lovingly defend the truth of your word. May we stand for it, Lord. May we stand against error. May we hold the banner of truth high. Father, I thank you that in this day and age of relativism, we can know the truth from your word. Thank you for what you've given us, Lord. May we pay attention to it. May we be diligent to pour it into our lives. 
Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.